um, as you recall, we've been, we've been going through the book of Acts for the past couple of months now. And Paul is currently on his second missionary trip. Uh, what we saw last week is um, that him and his companions encountered some conflict as a result of their, their preaching in Thessalonica. So they went to Thessalonica, they had some conflict there, the Jews were, were stirring up the crowds, and they went from Thessalonica to Berea. That's a town about 73 kilometers away. But um, as you may recall what happened, the, the Jews followed him. And uh, the crowds, and they started agitating and stirring up the crowds in Berea also. So the brothers, in other words, the Christian believers, they sent Paul, and it says in the last word, as far as Athens. And that was for his protection, right? So immediately you can see as far as Athens, they wanted to get him quite far away, that it wasn't just a day trip that the uh, troublemakers can follow him. Um, so Paul left Silas and Timothy. They, were, they remained behind in uh, Berea. And Paul went to Athens. So Paul finds himself alone in Athens. And um, so what do we know about the city of Athens? Athens was a leading city in ancient Greece. Its cultural achievements during, the, um, um, during its heyday is, is quite something. Today, Athens is seen as the civilization, of the, the foundations of Western civilization. It is considered the cradle of Western civilization. And it's the birthplace of democracy. Athens was once the center, world center of literature, philosophy, and the arts, and world-famous philosophers like Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates, they all come from Athens. In fact, Plato created the world's first university in Athens. It was called the School of Thought of Plato. And later it was renamed, see if you recognize this word, it was renamed the Academia, which simply means place of study. So all, all these things started in Athens. Now Aristotle was the world's most famous philosopher and his tutor, you might recognize his name, was Alexander the Great. So he was a world conqueror. So Athens wasn't just a city, it was the city. Let's all stand together and read today's passage, which is Acts chapter, six, uh, chapter 17 from verse 16 to 34. Now Paul, uh, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler have to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what these new teachings is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in, in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, 
I also found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Now the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear of you again about this. So Paul went out from the midst, from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you will guard my mouth to proclaim your word faithfully. And we pray that your spirit will open our hearts to receive your message and that you will write it on our hearts. Amen. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Right, this is a very interesting passage. So, um, first of all, Paul finds himself in Athens. Athens at this time was a great great tourist attraction. And it was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. It had temples on every corner, including the Parthenon. Um, the Parthenon is the most famous classic temple in, uh, in the world, and you can still go visit it today. Most tourists were overwhelmed and intimidated when they were in Athens. In fact, um, I found the ancient historian Petronius, he said, it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. Did you know that in Athens there were more than 50,000 gods? Can you just imagine that? So, um, yes, Paul, do you think yeah, he was intimidated and impressed with the beauty and the sophistication of Athens? Well, the word immediately says no. His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So, what did Paul see? He saw false religion, he saw ignorance, he saw indifference, and the Bible said he had a gut reaction. In other words, his spirit was disturbed by the idolatry. Now remember who Paul is. Paul suffered greatly for the sake of the gospel. He would not have suffered if he did not think that it was the truth. So during, during all his missionary trips, he felt very strongly about truth and about reality. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 
15 verse 19, he said, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people should be pitied. So, so Paul got it about false religion and about truth. He said that if Christianity was false, then Christians should be pitied. Because we are deluding ourselves, right? But if Christianity is true, we should proclaim it. We should sound the alarm bells. We should live for the glory of God. So that's why Paul had this gut reaction in him. Even today we have false religions, right? I was just reminded of that again um, with Justin and Nathan. They, my sons, they're currently studying in the States. And uh, it's now summer break. And they both find summer jobs um, at Christian summer camps. And um, as I had a look at America, that's, that's quite a big thing, Christian or, or summer camps in the summer. Um, and uh, it's, it's like an institution in America. And I found um, there's even some, some, some um, atheist camps, right? I found a camp called Camp Quest West. This is a real camp out in California. And according to the webpage, they specifically designed for campers between age six, uh, between eight and 17, for children of agnostics, atheists, free thinkers, humanists, unit, uh, unitarians, or whatever term can might be applied to those who maintain a purely naturalistic view of life. Further, they say on their website, okay, we've got 15 locations in the USA, even four in Europe. We've got more than a thousand kids going through our camps every year. And they offer many camp experiences, you know, just like all camp experiences. Roasting marshmallows, wilderness games, outdoor events, but at the end of the week, campers design their own religion, which everyone can believe in, and that will be good for everyone for all time. Okay, so the, that's, that's paganism today, right? Or one example of it. So Paul was stirred up at these misguided people in Athens. What about us as Christians? Should we be stirred up when we see people given over to paganism today? Remember, so many people are so unaware of their desperate need for Jesus Christ, so unaware of their desperate need for a savior. And God wants us to care. Remember, he's called us to be the salt and the light of the world. And in every Every situation, you know, we, we, we can draw back, we can go back into our shell, but um, we must always remember that God has called us to care. So please don't stop caring. Verse 17. So Paul, he was there, and he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace, every day with those that happened to be there. Now we know this was Paul's custom. He went to a new city, he went into the synagogue, and he reasoned with the people there. Um, and from verse 18, some of the Epicu Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others say he seems to be a preacher of fallen divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, maybe know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. We will bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So Dr. Luke, I call him Dr. Luke because he was a physician. He's the author of the Gospel of Luke and of Acts. And um, 
He's been described by modern scholars as a first-rate historian because he actually um, he, he was accurate in his descriptions and the names of towns, places, islands, and even when he names people and he names officials that reigned during those times. And here, he correctly mentions two philosophies, two, two schools of philosophies that was quite popular at those time in Athens. Greek philosophy. It is known for its undeniable influence on Western thought. Philosophy comes from the Greek word philosophia, and it means love of wisdom. Now, Christians should know what wisdom is, and we should love wisdom, right? Who does not want to love wisdom? And um, the Bible does tell us what wisdom is. One definition of wisdom is in Job 28, verse 28. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And what's the opposite of wisdom? Foolishness, right? What does the Bible say about foolishness? Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So, lovers of wisdom, and he mentions two schools of philosophies. And it's the only time in the whole Bible that schools of philosophies are actually named by the historian Dr. Luke. First, the Epicureans. They generally believe that if there was a God, he was not interested or involved at all with humanity. So what's man's purpose then? Well, it's to, to look for pleasure and to avoid pain. Their motto, and see if you, if you recognize their motto, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. An Epicurean is actually not someone who, um, who likes excessiveness. Now, if you go to a buffet and you had too much to eat, you, you know, it wasn't, wasn't the best idea. They were connoisseurs. They loved fine food, fine wine, literature, sensual pleasures, but not too much of it. They saw themselves as very sophisticated connoisseurs. On the other hand, we had the Stoic philosophers. They believed that everything was God. There was no personal God, but, you know, the combined substances of the world, the laws and everything, almost like Star Wars, you know, may the force be with you. Their emphasis there, though, was on personal discipline, self-control. They thought that the goal of life was to rise above all things. So um, they didn't really show emotional response, even to happiness or to bad, things that happen that's bad to them. Um, they said, you know, pleasure, pleasure doesn't last. Don't, don't just run after pleasure. It's, it's, not, it's not the right way to do it because it doesn't last. And even pain, you know, pain is a reality of life, so embrace it. They were um, teaching the development of self-control and fortitude. So you can see these two schools, they had completely different viewpoints, and they loved to just debate with each other and, you know, have arguments with each other. And they were quite intrigued, intrigued by Paul, and they called it Paul's babblings. I can just imagine the Epicureans calling it Paul's babblings about the resurrection of Christ. So they brought him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus is the high court in Athens. Now, Paul wasn't a prisoner. He was invited to come and explain himself to these philosophers. Areopagus is the original Greek name. 
and it means the hill of Ares. Ares is the Greek god of war. But now this was Roman times, and the Roman name persisted. And the, and the, uh, the god of war in Roman for the Romans was Mars. So the Areopagus was Mars Hill. It's, it's, the, it's, it's the same thing. So that is why today this sermon, people refer to it as Paul's Sermon on Mars Hill. Now Dr. Luke, the historian, makes a very astute observation that the people, in verse 21, he says the people spend their time in nothing else but to tell or hear something new. Uh, that's quite amazing. It's a nice, nice way of putting it, right? You can just see these people. And even today, we like to know. We are eager to hear the latest thing, right? Um, and, you know, we look for it in books, podcasts, documentaries, um, TED Talks. Modern man, we actually see ourselves as quite advanced, quite sophisticated, because we've got education, we've got technology, industry, smartphones, social media, so much knowledge at our fingertips. But did you know, we are also just products of philosophy. We get born into a world that's already shaped by certain philosophies, and, we, and we're just slotting without even knowing it. Um, the thing about philosophies, there are, there are consequences to ideas. And if it's bad ideas, there will be bad consequences. So looking for example, and it's quite an easy example today, um, and that is what's happening in American society today, and that is uh, gender ideology. You know, there's an ideology today that, that um, you are male or female based on what you identify as, based on what you believe you are not by what you actually are, but just by what you believe you are. If you think about it, a hundred years ago, that would have been totally crazy talk. Even, even 10 years ago, that would have, would have been crazy talk. But today, there's quite a, a growing portion of society that actually believes this. And gender ideology started with philosophy. And philosophy eventually trickles down into society. Again, wisdom. What does Proverbs 2 verse 6 say? For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. James 1 5. If any of you lack wisdom, it will be given to you. You should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Christians should be lovers of wisdom. And we should know that God is the source of wisdom. Without God, the search for wisdom is only, is only a path to self-destruction. Because ideas have consequences. And bad ideas will have bad consequences. Right, so here's Paul in the Areopagus. Can you just imagine the scene? Can you imagine the type of people Paul's about to preach to? These are not people that are, that's looking up to him. Um, they're not people who are looking for a savior. Um, Paul didn't, didn't perform any miracles to get their attention. He was just a babbler who was teaching some new things. And they are, of course, lovers of wisdom. They would like to know what's going on here. <coughs> In fact, you know, because they're philosophers, they have, they have heard and discussed every theory under the sun. Right, so point two of my sermon is the one true God. Acts 17 verse 22 to 
So Paul's message at Mars Hill is a wonderful example of Christian apologetics. Have you ever heard that term, apologetics? Well, apologetics is the intellectual defense for the truth of the Christian faith. Or you can just say it's explaining the reason for you believing in the Christian faith. And what I call the he used their religious idolatry as a starting point. He started with where they already are. He then come out and, um, and, and, and told them, well, you know what, you guys are all wrong and you know, let me tell you what's really going on. And um, he, he started with a classic example of gospel presentation where you, where you start where the listeners already are, what they already believe in. And then he presented the gospel message in a logical way. So what did he say in verse 22? Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed, and uh, passed along and observed the object of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. But therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And then he went on in verse 24, the God who made heaven, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So Paul immediately goes back to Genesis. He starts at the beginning, and he tells them that God is bigger than their invented gods. They needed to hear who God really is, what God really was like, before they could even understand, or before he could even proclaim to them the gospel. Paul begins by explaining to them that the sovereign God created all things, and he gives life and breath to all things. They were religious people, and religious people might pride themselves in serving God, right? But Paul says God does not need servants. He doesn't need temples. If God is truly God, he's self-sufficient. And nothing that man do can actually add to him. We don't praise and worship God because he lacks anything. We do it out of a heart of gratitude. We know he's our creator. So there's nothing that mankind can supply to him. Actually, God gives freely to us. He made the world and everything in it. In these brief statements, in two sentences, Paul actually wiped out the whole Greek religious system. But he did it in a nice way. Continue in verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, and that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we move, we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul continues by saying, God created all mankind from one man, and all nations come from one man. And he even appointed the boundaries of the dwelling. So God is God of a history, God is God of a geography, 
because he created mankind from one man. All the nations of all the people were made from the same DNA, the same blood. It's interesting that um, the Greeks, they actually believed that they were special people. They believed that they were superior people and that Athens, their country, was um, a special place given to them by their gods. Early Greek philosophers, it's interesting that Paul mentions that God created man from one, from one man and, he, and, he, and, and, and so forth. Because the early Greek philosophers, one of the things that they loved debating was diversity and unity. If, if you look around, there's diversity everywhere, right? Um, no two people look the same. We're all diverse. Uh, but yet, we are one. We are united. There is unity. We are all people. Same with birds. You can see birds. There's all types of birds, but it's all, they are all birds. They, they, there's unity. Same with flowers. Thousands of flowers. Different, diverse, but there's unity. And, and for the Greek philosophers, this was the thing that they debated, and they wondered, what came first? Was it all this diversity that, that melted into unity? Was it unity that started and now we have all the diversity? You know, these are the type of things that the philosophers, the lovers of wisdom, like to discuss. And that, that's why Paul mentioned this. He addressed it, stating that God made every nation from one man. And it, it's interesting today that um, we know that science confirms this. We are indeed of the same DNA, of the same blood. We are indeed of, this, of one man. Paul then continues his message to explain the closeness of God and that he is in reach of every man. It's interesting, instead of quoting the Old Testament, Paul decided to quote their own poets to them. Again, he, how he did his apologetics was he took the people where they already are in their beliefs. The first poet is a guy called Epimenides. And that's the line for in him we live and move and have our being. And then the second line is from a stoic poet called Aratus. And he said, for we are also his offspring. So Paul was saying that God is not avoiding us, but that God can be known. We know that God has revealed himself to humankind. That's recorded for us in the Old Testament. The Old Testament shows that God made himself known to Abraham. God made himself known to Moses. God made himself known to, this, to the nation of Israel. God took the initiative. In fact, what would we know of God if he did not reveal himself to us? If God did not take the initiative? God did not only take the initiative and made himself known to us. He made covenants. He made covenants with Abraham. Covenants with, with um, Moses. Covenants with Israel. Now again, Greek religion, completely different. They were just a manufacturing worship of gods who were patterned after men. Their gods were immortal, almost like superheroes, but they were just like us. They also fought with each other, they had arguments, they got angry and they had emotions like us. And Paul exposed this foolishness and um, also the foolishness of temples that you had to please the gods. Um, that, that made me think, we, we must be careful not to make idols of our God. We can make idols of our God. Um, have you ever heard Pedro say, 
that we may know God for who He really is. That is such an important sentence, that we must know God for who He really is. Because if we, we know the Bible, we believe in God, but we create a God in our mind that's different from the God that was revealed, how He revealed Himself to us, we can create an idol in our mind. Um, let's look at, so we must use the Bible to get a systematic and a comprehensive picture of who God really is. What are some of the things that we do that, you know, we make an idol of God? Um, one example is Santa Claus. We think he's Santa Claus in heaven. He's there to give us good things. But he's a nice guy. He, he never punishes us. He's never, you know, those type of things. There's no discipline provided. But um, if that's what we believe in, then how do we reconcile Hebrews? This, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and 6. It says there, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Some people even think that God is like a co-pilot. You know, he doesn't, doesn't perform miracles every day like he did with the, with the ten plagues. So, no, it's just a co-pilot. Um, He's not fully in control of things, but when there's an emergency, you know, he can take over and, and steer the ship to safety or, the, or the, the plane. He can land the plane for us. But what does Matthew 28 verse 18 says? And Jesus came to them and said, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Okay, if all authority has been given to Jesus, what is left? It's not even crumbs on the table left. All authority on heaven has been given to Jesus. Okay, up to here, Paul is speaking to the, to the crowd, and um, they didn't interrupt him. They didn't um, mock him. They didn't laugh at him. You know, they were listening intently to this, this new thing that he was talking about, because they are, after all, lovers of wisdom, quite intrigued by, by these new ideas. But then we get to point number three of the sermon, the gospel. Paul switches gears and he starts and he presents to them the gospel from verse 30. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Okay, Paul switches from who God is to what God requires of us. And what is that? That is repentance from our foolish ways. Repentance from our rebellion against God. Why must we repent? Why must we repent from our rebellion? Because there's a day of judgment coming. Paul says, because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. As a believer, do you know what you are saved from? What are we saved from? Are we saved from um, boredom or a low self-esteem? Or, you know, now I have a victor victorious life, I used to be a loser, um, or a lonely life? Are we saved from our sin? Are we really saved from our sin because I'm a Christian, I still sin? The Bible teaches 
that we are saved from the judgment of God. The judgment of God hangs over every unconverted person. We're not saved from our sins, but we are forgiven from our sins. No more condemnation. No more guilt. Did you know that, if you think about it, it's God alone who can save us from God's judgment. It's God alone who has taken the initiative to save us from his own judgment. So it's after this introduction that Paul concludes with the gospel. And it's the gospel that resulted in laughing and mockery. Up until then, these elites were intrigued, but now suddenly they were laughing at him. Paul completes his message by introducing the one before whom they would all stand one day and be judged, Jesus Christ, whom God had raised from the dead. The idea that Christ was dead, he was buried, and resurrection was absolutely foolishness for the Greeks. Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23. He said, We preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. The reason Paul said it was, remember the Jews, it was a stumbling block for him. We saw it in, the, in, in last week's sermon. When he preached Christ crucified, the Jews got so worked up. Now it was blasphemy. It's a stumbling block for them. They can't get over it. Where the, the Greeks is totally different. They're not offended by this. They just laughed. They thought this is foolishness. To a Greek, the body was only a prison. Why raise a dead body and then go live in it again? And, and why would God bother with a judgment, with a personal judgment of every man? This kind of teaching was incompatible with Greek philosophy. They believed in immortality, but not in resurrection. But then the passage concludes and it says, there was a few who accepted that what Paul proclaimed. They believed in Jesus Christ and they were saved. So Paul gave the Athenians the truth of the gospel. He made it accessible to them by starting the sermon with where they really are. And he did not dilute the gospel. He was not afraid to be mocked. He didn't think, okay, I've got all the clever people of this amazing city in front of me and my, my sermon will only be a success if they all stand up and clap, if they pat me on the back. He wasn't afraid to be mocked. You know, people can, um, we, we can agree on good morals, right? But good morals cannot save us from the judgment of God because God is judging us for our rebellion against him. We need God himself. We need Jesus. As, um, as, as John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus for the first time, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, because it is God himself who saves us from God's day of judgment. Okay, so the truth does sound foolish. It's impossible for us to intellectually convert people. You know, we can't have arguments and convert people but we still need to have a reason, to give a reason for why we believe in Christianity. And we know that it's not our arguments 
that wins people. It is God. God opens the eyes of people's hearts. God converts people. But when we have an opportunity to give a reason for being a Christian, we must proclaim that unashamedly, even if it does sound foolish to us, because it's God who softens the hearts of the listener. Remember, we also don't have to be scared. Our faith is not superstition. We have reason, we have logic, we have historical evidence. But at the same time, our faith is more than logic. Because God opened our, our eyes as well. Paul also quotes in, um, he quotes Isaiah 29, 14. He, he says in 1 Corinthians 1, 19, he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. So we don't have to worry about sounding foolish. Anyway, that reason did Jesus rise from the dead? Well, the tomb is empty, and we have eyewitness accounts, many eyewitness accounts of Jesus. Um, lastly, to, to um, my, my last bit of the sermon, I said, I want to tell you about a guy named Chuck Colson. Um, and his perspective on the resurrection of Christ. Chuck Colson was a special counsel to the US President Richard Nixon in the 70s. And um, he had a reputation for being a hard and unscrupulous man. In fact, he was known as Richard Nixon's hatchet man. What's a hatchet man? It's someone who's employed to go do the nasty stuff, to go do the, um, the disagreeable work. So he was quite a hard, hard type of character. You didn't mess with him in politics. Well, in 1974, something happened. There was the Watergate scandal. I don't know if you, any of you have heard about the Watergate scandal. Eventually, Richard Nixon, as president, had to resign because of the scandal. And Chuck Colson went to jail for his, for his involvement in this, um, in this uh, Watergate scandal. And, and this is the quote, listen to this. I know that the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, thrown in prison. They would not have endured it if it was not true. On other hand, Watergate, embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world. And they could not keep alive for three weeks. You are telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. So Paul boldly proclaimed his faith to intellectual skeptics because he knew the truth. And we also can be confident, not embarrassed, not intimidated, by this world. We must be able to give a reason for the faith that we have in us. Okay, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I want to pray Psalm 25 for us. It says, show us your ways, O Lord. Teach us your path. Lead us in your truth and teach us for you are the God of our salvation. Just as blindness leave us groping in the dark, 
we know that there is no life or redemption in human speculation. So Jesus, the crucified Savior, Jesus, you are the risen Savior. Please shape and inform our understanding of every aspect of the world. Amen.